0: After his wife and children were sold and shipped away to another state in 1848, Henry Brown resolved to do everything he could to escape the bondage of slavery. With the help of a free black and white shopkeeper, he devised a plan to have himself shipped from Richmond, Virginia to Philadelphia, Pennsylvania in a wooden crate. He wedged himself into a three by two foot box labeled dry goods. He would travel by wagon, steamboat, and railroad before arriving at the home of an abolitionist by the name of James McKim. He had limited food, limited water, limited supplies, and during one leg of this trip, that crate was turned upside down where for an hour and a half he was in that state. He said he thought that his sockets were going to burst. He nearly passed out before two unsuspecting passengers flipped the box so they could use it for seating. Was that not the grace of God? After 27 grueling hours of travel, He finally made it to Philadelphia in the cramped confines of the box. What would tempt a man to even try and escape slavery? Knowing the brutal consequences of what would have happened had he been caught. How could someone endure 27 grueling hours Of travel with 90 of those minutes being almost intolerable? The answer is very straightforward. The bondage of slavery is that miserable and intolerable. The worst whipping on a plantation would have seemed like a spanking. Compared to a man standing helplessly as he watched his wife and children be sold and shipped away. Brothers and sisters, bondage is brutal. It's a cruel, evil, and merciless experience. It's awful. It never has grace, kindness, liberty, or love in its sights. We have to understand that whatever death grip Satan has on us, it's never going to inexplicably just vanish one day. It's not going to happen. You're not just going to wake up one day and all of a sudden you're just going to be at peace and you're going to be at joy when you've been walking in bitterness and misery and insecurity and frustration and anger for years. How nice it would be to just wake up one day and stand on the scale and all of a sudden it's 50 pounds lighter because we took a pill the day before. Uh, that $50,000 in credit card debt is just not going to evaporate overnight. Uh, The urge to return to that besetting sin is not going to lessen just because we filled every blank of the handout in today. If we're going to take a bomb to that stronghold once and for all, then we're going to have to approach the Word of God in the spirit and conviction of one Henry Brown. Enough's enough. I'm done. I have to do whatever I have to do to get beyond this dreadful, miserable existence called bondage. So God, here I am. Whatever you would say to me from your word with everything in me, I will believe and I will obey. Undoubtedly, a critical piece of instruction from the Lord will be this. Galatians 5.1 Stand fast therefore in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. In literature, an oxymoron combines contradictory or incongruous words. Liberty and bondage Are contradictory or incongruent words, are they not? They are. A believer in Jesus Christ cannot both stand fast in the liberty wherewith Christ has made them free and be entangled again with the yoke of bondage. That's oxymoronic. It's not possible. It's one or the other. The instruction to stand fast in our liberty means that we are to be unmovable in the liberty that Christ has provided to us. Fixed. Unmovable. And when we are unmovable in that liberty that is ours in Christ, listen, that death grip that Satan has on us will not only be loosened, it's gone. Because again, you can't stand fast in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made you free and return again to the yoke of bondage. You can't do both. It's one or the other. With that in mind, let's go back to 2 Samuel chapter 5. We covered verses 6 and 7 the last time we were here. We'll read it again to get context, but our focus this morning will. Center on verse eight. And the king and his men went to Jerusalem unto the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, which spake unto David, saying, Except thou take away the blind and the lame, thou shalt not come in hither, thinking David cannot come in hither. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, the same as the city of David. And David said on that day, Whosoever getteth up to the gutter and smiteth the Jebusites and the lame and the blind that are hated of David's soul, he shall be chief and captain. Wherefore, they said, the blind and the lame shall not come into the house. So as we saw, Zion was being held by a Canaanite and heathen people The Jebusites. The Jebusites had a stronghold on what belonged to God's people. But the Bible tells us that David took or captured that stronghold. And this is what we need to see, because how he did it reveals to us right now how we take, how we capture, how we break strongholds in our lives, no matter what it is. Now, the first point of instruction that we're going to see today, and this will be all that we'll be able to cover, and it's okay, this is necessary, because we have to get this. We really do. We any, Anything we talk about after today, if we don't get this first critical point, uh, you'll just be daydreaming spiritually. Like you, You've got to get this first point, and it is... In principle, it is very consistent with the instructions that we read from the Apostle Paul in Galatians chapter 5, verse 1 regarding standing fast, being unmovable, being fixed, being set, being determined. Listen, we must fight and war. We must fight and war. We're going to build this. Verse eight says, and David said on that day, whosoever getteth up to the gutter and smiteth the Jebusites and the lame and the blind that are hated of David's soul, he shall be chief and captain. We're going to have to fight. They're not just going to give this to us. They're just going to roll over and say, "Oh yeah, here you go. Yeah, God promises to you. This is yours. Sorry, uh, we're we Can we get thirty days and we'll be out of here?" That's not how this works. Now, the approach that David took to appoint a chief and a captain is not an approach that me personally uh, that I would follow. First uh, Corinthians, or sorry, First Chronicles, eleven verse six. Notice what it says. And David said, whosoever smiteth the Jebusites first shall be chief and captain. And watch this. So Joab, the son of Zeruiah, went first up and was chief. Now, from what we've observed about Joab up to this point, it should come as no surprise that he was the first one to be willing to go up and fight. anything about Joab, he didn't have an issue with with fighting and warring. That was right down his alley. Bring it on. He was brave. He was fearless on the battlefield. He was a leader of men. If you had to get into a foxhole with a man where you had to fight for your life, I'd take Joab every day. This guy was a killing machine. And he was fearless. But He had clearly demonstrated by now that he was a man who was driven and governed by pride and rebellion. He had showed this. Please, please hear this. I understand who we are as Life Fellowship. We have a number of people Uh, who are anchors in this church. We have a number of men and women who are leaders in ministry, and it is a blessing. It's a privilege. I am humbled uh, to, to, to lead you as one of your pastors. But you need to hear this, and so do I. One of the worst mistakes, and I have seen this in ministry over the years, I continue to see it, and I imagine I will continue to see it. But one of the worst mistakes that is made in ministry is appointing and keeping people in positions of leadership because of ability at the expense of godly character. This is a costly mistake. And it always comes back to bite very hard. When you are building or leading a ministry team, you must guard against becoming so enamored with someone in terms of what they can do that you take or you you, you turn a blind eye to the blatant discrepancies in their character. Great, they know the Bible very, very well, but they're a terrible husband. They're a terrible father. Oh, my goodness, man, they can blow you away in terms of what they can show you from the book of Revelation and Daniel. Man, they can sing like an angel, but they are as rebellious to their husband as the devil is to God. But man, they can light her up. <laughs> no, thank you. No, thank you. I don't care how talented you are, how gifted you are, how zealous you are, how impressive you are. If your character stinks, no thank you. <laughs> no thank you. I am not saying that sinless perfection is a prerequisite. If it was, I wouldn't be standing here this morning. We could all just clear the room, starting with me. Not talking about that. But Joab had clearly shown that, listen, when he doesn't agree with his leadership, when he doesn't get his way, you know what he does? He does what he thinks is best. He rebukes the leader, not because the leader is wrong, not because the leader is in sin, just because I don't like that. So I'm going to spit in your face right now and I'm going to talk to you like garbage. I will even go as far as murdering someone, which is what he has done and what he is going to do again. Was he brave? Very. Was he courageous? Forget about it. Was he a killing machine? Absolutely. But at best, he was a liability. And he would prove that. He was not a man of the word, regardless of what he could do on the battlefield. Spiritually speaking, he was unfit to serve as chief and captain of an army. But the principle still stands. If the stronghold of Zion was going to be taken, they're going to have to fight for it. No doubt. Listen, the longer that someone finds themselves in bondage to a stronghold, the more hopeless and despondent they become. And they resolve, this is just how it is. This is how it's been. And this is how it's going to be. They're like the adult elephants that many of us have seen at the zoo that are tethered to a small stake with a small chain around the ankle of one of their legs. They have the power and the ability to, with minimal effort, yank that stake out of the ground and take off this two to three-ton beast. The issue, however is when they were a baby elephant being trained for the circus. They had this chain around their ankle that was connected to a stake in the ground. And every time they tried to get away from it, they were reminded that they couldn't. And over the years, they trained themselves to accept and believe that lie, even though At two to three tons, they could yank that stake out of the ground and get on with it. In their mind, they can. They've been trained to believe and accept a lie. But what always accompanies hopelessness and despondency, listen, are self pity and feeling sorry for ourselves. Every time. Brothers and sisters, please hear me. I understand the delicacy of what we're talking about this morning. I understand how hard life can be. I understand how deep and real pain is. I understand. I know what it's like to to be in a situation where as a child, it's ungodly. <laughs> and you don't have a voice. Uh, you don't get to make the decision. You don't get to uh, decide what this home is going to be like and what it's going to be about. Uh, you don't get to decide what, what, what kind of things you're going to be exposed to in that environment. Or things that will be said to you or done to you verbally, Physically. If, if I had to uh, assign one word to my childhood, it would be painful. I'm not alone. In this room, we've all lived long enough to, to get hurt, to, to go through things and, and all of that, but, but please, I, 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 you've got to get this. The adversary will never feel sorry for you. Never. The adversary will never feel sorry for you. And listen, I'll take it a step further. Hang with me. God never feels sorry for you. Does he have pity toward us? Yes. Not the same thing as feeling sorry for us, though. Is he merciful? Yes. Is he sympathetic? Yes. He's compassionate. But see, here's the thing. Here's why God never feels sorry for you or me. We're going to keep building this. The reason that God never feels sorry for us is because of something that he has given us. And you know what that is? victory. Why would God feel sorry for me when He's given me victory? Why would God feel sorry for me when He has indwelt me with His Holy Spirit? Why would God feel sorry for me when He's given me His Holy Word? Why would God feel sorry for me when he's given me his church? Why would God feel sorry for me when he's made me to sit together in heavenly places? Why would he feel sorry for me? Why? What is it in my life, what could I possibly face, go through, deal with, where God says, hmm, boy, that's tough, not sure how you're going to get through that. Man, I, I really feel sorry for you. See, feeling sorry for yourself, if God did that, if God says, yeah, okay, I'm going to join you. I, I feel so sorry for you. You know what that means? You know what God will be confessing? What God will be confessing is I don't have an answer for that. That's why he'll never feel sorry for you or me. Therefore, feeling sorry for ourselves and wallowing in self-pity will never break strongholds. That accomplishes absolutely nothing. You can feel sorry for yourself. You can wallow in self-pity day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year. Knock yourself out. Essentially, though, you'll be just like the children of Israel wandering in the desert for four decades. You'll get nowhere. You'll get nowhere. One of the hardest moments uh, as a father. Ken was in eighth grade and uh, he was playing basketball and and. Um, so in, our, in the town we live in, I, and it's not as far as I don't know who somebody was a guy. Where's guy? Yeah, yeah. You, you don't need a passport or anything to come to Gardner. So <laughs> <a> flight, <laughs> yeah. So maybe your layover is in, is, is Overland Park maybe. So uh, Ken's plan and there's a middle school that was is a rival middle school to the school that he played at, and and I could just feel it in the gym when we walked in. Like man, this is. Uh, like this place is juiced. Like these people are ready. Like they 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 want a game, you know? And he he had a bad game. Really bad game. I, I could see, you know your kids, right? The lights were just too bright, the stage was just too big. And he had a bad game. And this team was very good. They played a lot of pressure man defense, so they want to speed you up, force you to make decisions faster than you want to make decisions, force you into turning the ball over, all of that. And I mean, in the first half, he was a turnover machine. And all the things that we had talked about, that we had worked on, hey, don't dribble into a problem, don't pick up your dribble too soon, handle the ball really well, all that, right? I mean, he would dribble into a problem, pick up his dribble too soon, and get trapped in the corner, things you just don't do. And in the second half, the coach finally just benched him for the rest of the game. And I could sit there and I could see his body language on. I mean, it was just defeat, despondency, discouragement. I mean, he's just sitting on the bench, just. And so we got home. He was crushed. I said, hey, look, I love you, but here's the deal. When you step between those lines, there is no mercy. Mercy. And that coach and those players are not going to feel sorry for you. As a matter of fact, if I was the coach, you know what I would have said in a timeout? Number 14 is afraid. Every time he gets the ball, I want you to smother him like your life counted on it. That's exactly why. Because you showed that. Now, here's the deal. We we can... We can stay in this room and we can lick our wounds and we can feel sorry for ourselves or you can come with me because I recorded the whole thing. And we're going to take my tablet and we're going to look at it and we're going to break all this down. And we're going to look at the truth. And that's what we did. Okay, stop right here. Why did you pick up your dribble? You can see it. And you know what? By the grace of God and his hard work, He got better (laughs) because I said, listen, you know what? You're going to see this again. You're going to face pressure, man, defense. It's coming. It's not going away. So get ready. (laughs) So let's go to work. What what was I doing? I was saying, listen, you got to fight in war. Now, if if you want to lay in your room, if you're sorry for yourself, go for it. But I'm not going to be a part of that because that'll get you nowhere. And praise the Lord, man, he went to work. Listen, the only thing that that does when you feel sorry for yourself and wallow in self-pity, you know what that does? All it does is strengthen the adversary's grip on you. You just empower his grip even more. If we must fight in war, listen, we must accept that we are at war. You got to accept this. As a believer in Jesus Christ, you are at war as we speak. In part one of the message of strongholds, we talked about a stronghold being anything that has a death grip on you that is preventing you from the abundant life that is yours in Christ. So instead of the abundant life, it's abundant death. So keeping us in bondage, listen, here's what it does. It allows the devil to steal glory from God. Why? Because there is no glory for God to be had in your life when you're in the bondage of a stronghold. God gets no glory out of that. None. The devil robs God of glory in that situation that we allow him to do. This is why Satan wants to block you from the abundant life because he wants glory that is rightfully God's. The reality that we have to fight in war is reinforced throughout the New Testament. Look at these verses. 2 Corinthians 10, verse 3. For though we walk in the flesh... We do not war after the flesh, for the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalted itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ and having in a readiness to revenge all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. More on this verse next week. Ephesians 6, 11, and 12, but put on the whole armor of God that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness, of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Second Timothy two, three and four. Thou therefore endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No man that warreth entangled himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who hath chosen him to be a soldier. Second Timothy four, verse seven. I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. First Peter four, one. For as much then as Christ has suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves likewise with the same mind. For he that has suffered in the flesh hath ceased from sin. Think we're at war. Think we have to fight in war. When you consider these verses just at a very basic level, an undeniable takeaway, when you look at these verses that we just quickly read through, the idea of feeling sorry for yourself and wallowing in self-pity Oh, no. <laughs> oh, no. That is futile at best. Now, before we transition to the next major point, this will be huge. And it just might be as someone in this room or someone viewing like this is the day, this is the moment that you gotta hear from God and you have to agree, this is huge. Listen, one of the first critical steps in breaking strongholds is to stop being a victim. Stop. Stop being a victim. Stop thinking like a victim, stop speaking like a victim, and stop acting like a victim. Stop. Stop. That is not true. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you cannot tell me that you are a victim. The Bible says you are lying. The Bible not me. The Bible says this. A few years ago during the uh, some of the social unrest in our nation, if you haven't noticed, I am a black man. So, I know. Surprise, surprise, right? I know. <laughs> yes. I had a number of people that wanted to hear what I had to say. What do you have to say? Well, I have to say what the Bible says. That's what I have to say. But, but do you understand? Part of, uh, part of what, was, uh, uh, what was seasoned in some of that was uh, I'm a victim, right? I'm a victim. When I look at everything happening in the world. I'm, I'm, I'm a victim, right? So I should be angry. I should walk around with a chip on my shoulder. No. (laughs) What am I angry about? I'm a believer in Jesus Christ. Uh, He's blessed me with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places. I'm more than a conqueror. I'm joint heirs with Jesus Christ. Nothing can separate me from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. God eternally loves me. I, I, I've been accepted in the beloved. What am I angry about? I'm sorry, I, what did I miss? Are you saying, oh, are you okay with in- No, I'm not okay with injustice. Neither is God. But I'm not angry. I understand it. Listen, at the end of the day, what should your expectations be of fallen people in a fallen world? <laughs> I don't expect fallen people to abide by righteousness and justice. They're fallen. They're lost. Lost people think lost things, say lost things, and they do lost things. Why? Because they're lost. (laughs) But I have to ask you a very simple question. And before I ask you this, I want you to see the clear teaching of Scripture so that you can answer this question honestly. We've got a number of verses here as we read through these. I want you to just get ready because I'm going to hit you with a question. So here we go. John 8.32. We're just going to belt it out. And you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. John 15.11. Who had that? Okay. Romans 8 37. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. 1 Corinthians 2.16. For who hath known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct them, but we have the mind of Christ. 1 Corinthians 15, 57. But thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Corinthians 2 Corinthians 2.14. his knowledge by us in every place. 2 Corinthians 3:17 Now the Lord is that Spirit and where the Spirit of the Lord is there is liberty. Ephesians 1:3 Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who hath blessed us all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. Colossians 2:10 And ye are complete in him which is the head of all principality and power. 2 Timothy 1:7 1 John 2:13 and 14 First John 4:4. greater in Here's the question: Is a believer in Jesus Christ a victim? This is why you're wasting your time. This is why I'm wasting my time. I'm just going to lay around and let the devil kick sand in my face and bully me and intimidate me and run roughshod over me and woe is me and it's just so hard and you just don't understand and and you know I'm the exception and I just can't have joy and I just I just can't get it together I just can't what what what, what, what do we just what do we just look at Listen, if that's how you're rolling, that's not on God and that's not on anyone else. That's on you. Please, I am all for biblical counseling. I believe that it can be transformative. Notice I said, it can be transformative. Here's why I say that. Biblical counseling is ineffective, listen, when someone is determined to be a victim. You can spend an hour, you can spend five hours, you can spend 20 hours, you can spend 365 days a year counseling somebody. But if they are determined to be a victim, you are wasting your time. And one of the telltale signs that someone is determined to be a victim is that, listen, they are unwilling to fight in war. Unwilling. Not talking about slinging a sword, not talking about shooting arrows or throwing grenades, talking about taking God at his word. And despite what my feelings are telling me, despite what my intellect is telling me, despite what the world is telling me, I say, God, I choose to believe you. I'm going to fight in war right there. What did God say? I don't care about anything else. This is where we're going to be going next week. But that will not be of much help to you if you've decided you're going to be a victim. And you're going to wallow in self-pity and feel sorry for yourself. Listen, between now and next week, here's what I want to challenge all of us to do. Would you take these verses that we read throughout loud, would you take these verses And I want you to meditate on them. I want you to pray on them. And then listen, here's one. Very carefully, listen very carefully. Between now and next Sunday, I want you to talk with at least one person every day this week about these verses, or one of these verses, or some of these verses. And by talking about them, here's what I am saying you're not talking about these verses in terms of, that sounds good, but here's why that won't work for me. See, someone who's determined to be a victim, they're also determined to be the exception. So God, I hear what you're saying, but but, but let me tell you why that I'm excused. No, I'm talking about husbands and wives. Having conversations from a place of victory. To say, hey, you know what? Listen, man, what a blessing to know that I am complete. I'm not incomplete. I'm complete in Christ. Hey, boy, this is challenging that we're dealing with, but you know what? I read somewhere that, that, that we can do all things, not some things. We can do all things through Christ. Hey, husbands, this starts with you. Husbands, it starts with you. You set the tone for the discussions in your home. Like one of the things with a husband, you have to do more on this, guys. I got a message for you coming up very soon. But, but listen, as a husband, if there's one thing you have to do is you've got to point your wife, you've got to point your children back to the word of God. This is what the word of God says to us. So this is how we're going to think. This is how we're going to speak. This is how we're going to roll. This is the direction that we're going to take based on God's Word. We are winners in Christ. Uh, Some men, you have allowed this cloud of doom and gloom and misery and negativity and defeat to just hover over your home. No. (laughs) I know what God said in his word, and I if it kills me, as the Morgan family, this is where we're going, this is how we're going, this is why we're going, and this is what we're going to do based on what the word of God says. And I'm not asking what anybody thinks about it. (laughs) We're rolling. We have to. you got to kick that cloud out, man. You understand? Father, thank you for your word. I do pray that it won't return void. In Jesus' name, amen.